A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Welcome to Movie Crush, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Movie Crush. You know what that means? Well, you don't because I didn't even say. <laughs> there. You know what that means? Yeah. You heard Casey. That means uh, we're coming in for another part of the filmmaker series, Casey on Kubrick. Yeah. Welcome, sir. Thank you. Glad to be here again. Looking forward to it today. It's been a minute. Yeah, it's been a minute. And I pushed it back a week, so it's been a minute more than that, than it would have been. I think I pushed it too, probably. Yeah, maybe maybe we both had a push this time. We've been uh, kicking this down the road. Yeah. But for no reason other than being busy because this is one of my favorite movies, Casey. Oh, wow. So of Kubrick's, you would rank this probably near the top for you? Uh, I've got all of his tied for first. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> He's kind of that kind of filmmaker. But Yeah, I mean, they're all great. I don't know if I could uh, I don't know if I could put one above the other for any particular reason. Yeah. Yeah, I would say just just the scale of 2001 is something that's pretty mind-boggling. Is that next? I feel like you can only do that <laughs> once in a career, maybe. Is that uh, next? Are we going to do that next? You know what? I, yes, although uh, I, I'm looking for a, a little interlude from Kubrick, maybe. <laughs> oh. Uh, yeah. All right, so we're not going to finish him out. We, we, I think we will. I think we will. It's just, uh, I don't know. Lately, I've been been wanting to... Jump around? Jump around a little bit, yeah. All right, we, yeah. we can do that. Yeah. Uh, we'll decide that at the end. Yeah. Uh, so let me give you my quick history with this movie. I saw it in the theater in 1987. Oh, lucky you. When I was a sophomore in high school. Yeah. And my, you know, as you well know and listeners know, like, I've always loved movies. I've read Premiere Magazine and watched Entertainment Tonight every night when I was, like, 13, totally. like a little dork. <laughs> but, like... You know, I was I knew that this was the guy who did The Shining. So I wasn't like you. I wasn't writing a, a treatise on Godard <laughs> right. the, for my seventh grade paper. Yeah. 
Um, so when I saw it, it was like, uh, you know, it was the new war movie mm-hmm. uh, that came out. And I love war films. And it became a big thing with our friends, obviously, because of Lee Ermey. So quotable. And so quotable. So that was sort of my back history. I've seen it a bunch since then. Um, but then last night, uh, or I guess a couple of nights ago now, first time I've seen it in many, many years. Okay, great. And then to really, again, when you look at it through this like really, really deep dive critical eye, yeah. uh, so many more things were just popping for Absolutely. me. It's pretty great. Yeah, I've. This is one of those movies that it's hard for me to even remember the first time I saw it. Yeah, because it has that sensation of a movie that has always existed for me. Kind of. <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. <laughs> uh, I've, I've always been the caretaker here. It, it's it's like, yeah, it's 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 one of those movies that is so, it's so like informs what I think of as quote unquote what a war movie is. Yeah, what a war m- movie can do or say that it's really hard to imagine it not existing or me not having seen it. So, yeah, and this one, you know, Kubrick is very famously anti-war. Mm-hmm. Um, although he says, and I'm sure you know this, that this was not an anti-war film in his eyes. Right. He just sort of wanted to just show stuff for exactly. like as it existed. He was really drawn to the very, very minimalist kind of prose style mm-hmm. of a couple books about the Vietnam War. Uh, one called uh, Dispatches by Michael Herr, yeah. who he ended up hiring to be the screenwriter right. to adapt a different book by Gustav Hasford, The Short Timers. So a lot of the narrative in the movie is drawn from The Short Timers. Right. And I think you could you could probably argue that some of the – just the, the overall tone and feeling of the film comes also from uh, Dispatches because okay. it's – Dispatches was almost too abstract, too minimal, too bare, too episodic for Kubrick to see a way to make it into a film. Right. But there was something about the tone, the matter-of-factness, the fact that, you know, Kubrick wanted to have this kind of almost like objective God's-eye view on warfare and not necessarily comment so heavily the way he might have in an earlier film like Paths of Glory. Mm -hmm. So he was going for, yeah, almost a kind of like eerie neutrality or something. Yeah. Yeah. I get that. Um, geez, where do we start? I guess we can, uh, well, I will say I did, I, I didn't do a ton of background research on this. Um, so I'm going to rely on you more for that. Sure. But I did read a bit and the, um, who, who was it that wrote short timers? Gustav. Gustav Hasford. Yeah, yeah. Apparently they met one time for a dinner. Interesting. And, um, Kubrick had him over for dinner and it did not go well. Ah. And Gustav was like, I don't ever want to see that guy again. Wow. So I don't know what happened. Wow. But, Interesting. But uh, they did. And and apparently people were like, you should not get together because you two guys are not going to get along. Wow. Interesting. And people could kind of see the, the trainer at coming. I guess. I'm not sure why. Yeah. But they just said these two are not going to get along. And sure enough, after the dinner, he was like, that's it for me. Maybe. And then they battled for, you know, screenwriting credit. Interesting. Yeah, maybe they. After um, the fact, I don't know. Maybe they they were too, too too big of a kind of an ego clash or something. I don't know, man. Or they just they both had a very singular way of seeing things and didn't see eye to eye or something. It's maybe. Interesting. But I feel like I mean I haven't read either one of those books, but it definitely feels like, and you know with all Kubrick stuff, I love I love that he always bases something off of a novel. Yeah, he he talks about how um, almost kind of doing a little bit of a revision of his own history. Um, he says that he's he's always worked from other other books, other yeah. screenplays, other works. 
um, that for him, the most important and most lengthy and difficult part of making any film is simply deciding on a story that moves him enough to want right. to make a film about it. And just reads and reads and yeah, reads and reads. reads and reads and reads. And he says, you know, there's there's no particular method to the madness. Yeah. There's, there's no way to reliably produce something that he's really going to fall for. He says it's basically like uh, falling in love. It's like yeah. you can date a lot, but there's no guarantee – you know, until you meet that right person that it's going to click. So, right. and it, it's one of those things that when it does click, you almost can't explain it right. in, in language and in kind of rational terms. It's just something you feel. And it's like once he um, read, you know, the short timers, he really kind of just felt like I have to make this a film, you know. Yeah. And he even says something very interesting that sometimes the books that you read that too easily suggest – what to do with them cinematically. Right. Sometimes that can be a problem. Oh, I'm sure he he wants that perfect balance of yeah. challenge. And... Yeah, yeah, because if it clicks in too easily in your mind, if you can see the images and you can kind of see how to structure it and everything, right. maybe it's because it's already too similar to something that's already been done before. Yeah, So you want that kind of, like you said, that, that good balance of uh, a, 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 an idea that can be expressed visually uh, in new terms, but there's enough of a like a genre hook or mm -hmm. familiarity there to kind of um, make the perfect blend. So uh, right away, this film, um, if you're you know one of the uh, a Kubrick, uh, one of the initiated as a fan, the first thing that's really going to um, kind of stand out for someone, I think, is the use of popular music. Yes, which he does not historically do much of at all. Yeah, and it's really kind of striking because you're used to that symphonic score mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden this movie like starts off with pop music and you're like whoa that's that's different yeah it was a goodbye my sweetheart hello vietnam yeah something like that yeah the country Which is, song. you know it all all the songs in here fits and i also did read that he uh he had never heard the rolling stones yeah he, he until apparently this movie <laughs> yeah he said he was you know i mean this is an understatement for him to say I, i'm not that familiar with rock music like if by 1987 you haven't <laughs> yeah. heard the Stones and you like lived through the 60s and 70s, then yeah, yeah. you are pretty That's heavily crazy, checked out of popular music in, yeah. in some ways. So he, you know, he does his research and then eventually lands on Paint It Black. Yeah, uh, for the end. But uh, I guess I mean let's talk about Arlie Ermy. Yes. Um, I mean you know the the background to his the story. casting story. Yeah, yeah go yeah. ahead and. Uh, Dive in there. So I think there was originally a different actor that was hired to play the role of the drill instructor. It's the gunner. Ah, the the one Get who's some. yeah. Get wow. Some. Okay. It was him. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. So I mean, I can see him doing that part, but Arlie Ermey, it's obviously it's impossible to imagine yeah. anybody else doing that role as well as he yeah. did. But Arlie Ermey was more like the, you know, he's like a not a dialect coach, but he was like a consultant. somebody who who'd really done yeah. the job, and he was like a consultant, and he was you know going to show them kind of the right way to plant yourself physically and, right. and things that they would say and that kind of thing. Just procedural stuff. And, you know, Kubrick, after watching him, was just kind of like, no, I think this guy is the one for the movie. It's why Why am I trying to get some actor to match up to what he's doing? Right. He's already doing it. Yeah. And he's fantastic at it. And, you know, Arlie Ermey was um, apparently just full of these, like, sayings and you know, new combinations of vulgarity and yeah, they, this kind of poetic, like... <laughs> Supposedly he wrote 150 pages of, yeah. in, of insults. I just, you know, I just read last night um, the first section of the short timers, which is the boot camp section of the film, mm -hmm. 
pretty, pretty closely. I mean, the whole arc is there with, yeah. you know, Joker, uh, Private Pyle, who has a different name in the, I mean, a lot of the names are different, but Joker and Pyle, the nicknames are the same. Oh, okay. Um, but it's it's very, very close to the to the film, um, in, including some of the things that I kind of assumed were Arlie Ermey ad libs. Oh, really? They were they were there in the in the book. Huh. Uh, but of course, Arlie Ermey added on yeah. a, an extensive amount uh, to to all of that. Yeah, it was. Uh, I mean, I wrote down a few of my favorite favorites. <laughs> uh, one of my favorites is when he's in Cowboy's face early on. I mean, that first Steadicam shot. Yes. When he's going all around the room. Oh, yeah. Is just. I mean, it's so easy to take that for granted. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Until you really kind of pay attention. Oh, I mean, it's it's masterful. It is just like, it, what a way to begin the film. I mean, obviously, there's the, the little montage of the haircut um, before well, then, which buzzing is, the hair. That's which is, a great way to begin the film, too. And by the way, that is that is lifted pretty directly from a documentary, Frederick Wiseman documentary called Basic Training. Oh, uh, really? Um, just plowing through the hair. Yeah, yeah. Just these these like portrait kind of shots, mm-hmm. close ups of the faces of the men as they're getting their head buzzed off or their hair buzzed off. Yeah, and um, yeah. I mean, uh, Kubrick obviously did extensive research uh, on Vietnam, yeah. really immersed himself in it, and watched you know everything documentary wise he could get his hands on. So that's one thing that that did come through. But yeah, that 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 first long Steadicam shot with Arlie yeah. Ermey. It just sets the tone of the film so well and, and just kind of you're just immediately in it. You know, he's immediately super compelling. You're glued to the screen. You're laughing. You're terrified. Yeah. You know, it's it's amazing. Yeah. And just the production design in that barrack is uh, oh, yeah. it really plays into Kubrick's hand. As symmetry. Symmetry yes. and just the perfection. Like yeah. Kubrick never, you know, I don't remember many of his scenes that had like messy rooms and no like sloppy stuff even on screen yeah it's always almost clinical yeah and kind of antiseptic and this was and, just perfect yeah that, that red floor yes and all you know everything all the beds are made just perfectly and he i'm sure he felt like i feel very comfortable in here <laughs> yeah yeah like all the fluorescent lights overhead and yeah just like the the even spacing of it all and uh-huh. the, the 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 fun he's able to have visually Every time the the soldiers are are lining up for something, the way he uses that almost kind of like mirror in a mirror, yeah, like disappears off into infinity, uh-huh. and suggests so well that, for instance, what we're seeing in the foreground between maybe Joker and Pyle, is perhaps being mirrored in other ways in these other characters you only get a glimpse of in the background, but yeah, there's a sense in which like we're looking at this one particular case, but it generalizes to you know, thousands. Of yeah, people. for sure. Yeah. And I didn't realize uh, it. I mean, you're laughing sort of so much at Arlie Ermey. Yeah. Because that stuff is genuinely funny. Yeah. Um, but to see it at this age, like, and get sort of the message underneath, uh, I was still laughing. Yeah. <laughs> but there's that undercurrent of, uh, I mean, the anti-war message that he wasn't even trying to make. Right. Which is just this dehumanizing thing that these guys go through. Yeah. Um, and the effect that it had on me to not only Arlie Ermey literally always yelling, mm-hmm. but everyone else is always yelling. Yeah. Because when you address the drill sergeant, it's so – it's not even just, sir, yes, sir. Yeah. It's so over the top. You're yelling with like your just whole body. Screaming. Just like the top of your lungs. For, yeah. I mean, the first – 50 minutes of this movie. Yeah. I mean, there are a couple little quiet interludes here and there. But it's mostly just people shouting at it's each other. It's mostly people shouting. Yeah. And it's so disconcerting uh, to sit there and go through that. And I think that's part of, obviously, what Kubrick was doing was, like, he wanted, I think, 
people to feel like this is what it feels like to be constantly yelled at. Yeah. And you see the contrast with like Private Pyle Leonard. He he's very soft spoken. Yeah. And when he when he speaks for a long time, it is kind of this shy, uh-huh. introverted, you know, he, he's almost like he's embarrassed by the sound of his own voice, kind of. He's kind of like uh-huh. apologetic about it. And just how how he does not blend at all yeah. with, with any of that. And you you get the sense that he's he's just uh you know too too delicate of a soul let's say yeah to uh to survive in that in that kind of environment yeah and man he's like the perfect kind of model for yeah what can maybe go wrong with that kind of training that kind of depersonalization and breakdown and yeah I mean he was, rebuilding uh, you into a machine and all that yeah I mean the the arc that character takes from uh, from tubby shy uh, yeah. Maybe learning disabled. Yeah, like, yeah, The yeah, way he yeah. plays it, you you sort of wonder, you know, what's going on there. I wonder a little bit about what got him there. What's the backstory? Yeah. I mean, there, I guess he was just drafted. There's a there's a beat in the in the short story um, where he says to Joker, he's like, I, you know, I'm sorry, Joker. I'm 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 always screwing up. I can't do anything right. Yeah. You know. Um, I'm 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 so glad you're helping me out because no one in my life ever like showed me how to do things. And yeah, you just you, you get, you get like you get like a hint of of what's going on there if it's some kind of neglect or or mm-hmm. what. But um, Joker, when when he has this kind of personal moment with him, um, just kind of turns away. He's like sounds like a personal problem, and, and yeah, you know, and just kind of like shuts him out. Their you know? relationship is really interesting. Yeah, yeah, because at different times, Joker. Um, hates him. Yes. And he cares about him. Yeah. And he mentors him. Yeah. But also loathes him. It's just, it's really complex. Yeah. And uh, again, in the, in the story, there's, there's a moment where, well, I mean, it, it happens in the film as well. The, uh, the, what do they call it? The blanket party oh, where, they, where they hold him down and they beat him with the bars of soap, you know, wrapped up in towels. Yeah. Um, you, you pretty much get a hint of this in the film because Joker is the last one. Right. Who has not hit him yet. And he's kind of egged on by the others, and he almost feels this kind of social pressure, like like he is he going to even do it? it? Yeah, yeah, he needs to do it, kind of, to make it clear that he is with them and not with Private Pile. Yeah, and um, and so he starts to beat him, and it's like once he starts, something almost kind of yeah comes loose in him, and he has this kind of cathartic moment where it's like he really does hate his guts in that moment, and he yeah. beats him even harder than the rest of them. Oh man, and um. That scene Just is like that frustration comes yeah. comes to the surface all of a sudden, and then uh, in the book uh, it says that you know he actually feels tears coming from his eyes, and he beats him harder because of that, right. because he made him feel those tears. Yeah. Whereas in the film, he doesn't cry necessarily, but he lies back down in his bunk and he covers his ears while yeah. he hears the cries echoing. Modine is so good in this. Oh yeah. Uh, you know, my brother worked with him really on. Uh, and the band played on. Oh wow! That the HBO film many yeah, years ago about yeah, yeah, yeah. the AIDS crisis, and um, they they kind of got to be pals. Cool. Like as much as a, a second AD and a lead actor can yeah, get yeah. to be pals. That's like, awesome. They kept in touch for a little while afterward, yeah. and uh, were like genuinely like friendly kind of pals for a while. Yeah. And uh, Scott always said he was just such a good dude. Um, ever have conversations about Kubrick? I don't know, man. Yeah. I would. Love to, I'm gonna ask Scott next time I see him. Yeah. Um. But the uh, well, I, I teased ten minutes ago about some of my favorite lines. I might as well go and say yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. When when he first comes up to ca- uh, cowboy, and he's yelling at him, he pauses for a second and goes, "Are you about to call me an asshole?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, I love. I don't that. know why that one always jumps. It's out. really funny. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, w- when 
I mean, geez, the whole intro to Pyle was just so oh, like, yeah. heartbreaking. Oh, man. But uh, did your parents have any children that lived? Yes, yes. <laughs> oh, man, it's so good. Oh, I felt so bad for him in that scene because he's like, it's hard to not, they're all sort of cracking up a little bit. But Pyle really can't keep it together. Yeah, man. And that's, again, I mean, I think that shows. So much sympathy. He has like, he he gets it immediately that this is absurd and it is really funny. And, you know, the while the drill instructor might be scary, he's also just funny, like ridiculous. Yeah. Just really you know, he has an appreciation for the, the language and, and all that. And, um, yeah, the, the drill instructor just kind of forces it out of him by choking him. And um, the, he switched the switch goes off right yeah. after that choke. Yeah. You can see it in his Where he's eyes. Like, he's like, this isn't fun. That's yeah. not funny. You know, this isn't going to be a good time. Yeah. And there's no, like, ironic detachment I can have from this. Like, yeah. He's literally going to cut off, you know, the oxygen. Yeah. And this and, is not stripes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and is not it's not for fun. It's not make believe. Yeah. Yeah, it's such a tough scene to sit through. Um and and Joker too, you know, they establish him right off the bat when he makes that joke out loud. The John and, Wayne. And, yeah, voice. and I literally said the other day when I was watching, I was like, what the fuck was he thinking? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like yeah. Well, he's smarter than that. He is. Yeah, it's really interesting the I mean, he's he's the the drill instructor is so menacing in the yeah. film from from the first moment on uh-huh. that it kind of feels like yeah you'd be insane to make a joke like that you know it's going to come <laughs> back on you like a hundredfold or maybe they don't like it was day one so yeah maybe this would you know because maybe they didn't know yet there's more of that in the short story where they actually it. He's like he doesn't start punching them and choking them immediately. Right. He it's it's it is strictly on the level of you know verbal abuse for mm-hmm. a while, and so they they have almost more of like a back and forth like they're they're kind of ribbing each other, and then you know within like a week or so he is just like punching them, beating the crap out of them. Yeah. Um. There's this whole thing about how when he really wants to like do some damage to somebody, he asks them to come with him into the bathroom. And then because the bathroom floors are always freshly mopped, they're very slippery. And so if you go into the bathroom with the drill instructor, who knows what happens, maybe you slip and fall a few right. times. Uh, and you come out of there looking about half dead. Gotcha. Um, so if anything, he's he's even more physically kind of violent in the book. But huh. at at the beginning, it's he doesn't establish that, that physical dominance quite so quickly, which is interesting. Yeah, and that uh, cinematically, I want to call out that shot, the uh, sunset shot. Oh, beautiful. With the silhouettes. Yes. Which is interesting. Like Kubrick certainly is known as a beautiful photographer, but that shot for some reason didn't feel Kubricky. It feels almost like it could be like an apocalypse now or something. Yeah. It's it's a little more stylized. Like it's such a red, orange kind of glowing shot. It's a real extreme telephoto shot, which I mean, he uses a lot of long lenses, but there's just something about it that feels almost more documentary-like or something. Gorgeous shot, It kind of feels like something that... I mean, Kubrick was was known for this in general. His his shooting method was typically to find the shots on the day, but that one really feels like... They were just shooting B-roll or something, and he found that shot and was like, let's get this, you know? Yeah. As opposed to something that would have been written into the screenplay yeah, like or, or visualized wait beforehand. For the sunset. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it feels like something that, yeah, they just they found in the moment, and it is such a beautiful shot. Yeah. Yeah. It stands out kind of in the whole film. Well, and the, um, the, the editing, too, sort of struck me as um, – 
the way it sort of felt to me was softer than most of his films. Interesting. Uh, like, I feel like The Shining had a bunch of abrupt cuts. Sure. And this felt like just, especially the the you know this first half of the film, just felt like one long sequence of shots just sort of dissolving into one another. Yeah. And it's all like. I never noticed until a couple of days ago, they never talk about Vietnam. Yeah. You never yeah. hear the word Vietnam. True. Until, until well into the second half of the movie. Well, no, at the very end when he's giving out the assignments. Right, right, He right, talks right. about going over to yeah. Vietnam and fighting the enemy. Yeah. But before that, like what, what this is missing that most war films would have like this, like Vietnam boot camp. Yeah. What, why, where are the scenes where this they're sitting around talking about going to war yeah. and what that's going to be like? Yeah. And the effect that removing all that has is... It's just shot in sequence after sequence of training and getting screamed at. And it's really it, – it it feels like they're just in this bubble. Yeah, exactly. You're – yeah. And, and I, isolated. I, yeah. It's like you're looking at this kind of like vacuum-sealed example of here is what the basic training boot camp experience yeah. is. And it's kind of like – I mean, there's almost like a universality to it. Like this could be for a different conflict. This could be right. post-Vietnam, pre-Vietnam. It's like this is sort of like this is just what we do to create these Marines. Yeah, there's no know? emotion. Yeah. There's no scenes where they sit around and talk about how hard it is yeah. or what an asshole the drill sergeant is. Right. It's all just training. And then a couple of little scenes like with Leonard and uh, Joker, you know, putting together the gun and stuff like that. But yeah. other than that, it's just an assault on your senses. Yeah. And I think, I mean, he's Kubrick is very deliberately, I think, not going for that effect yeah, yeah. Of, of, you know, the kind of psychological, like, identification with the characters and so on. Yep. Everybody's a little bit at arm's length, even mm-hmm. though you might sympathize with them. There's there's nothing really to give you that that inside view of what they're really thinking or experiencing, what yeah. the backstory is or anything like that. It's just kind of like somehow no at all. through whatever circumstance, yeah. whether they're drafted, whether they enlisted, whatever it is, they've ended up here mm-hmm. and they're just all in it together now. Yeah. Um, through this, you know, this massive dehumanizing sort of um, um, regiment that they're going through. Well, and the what really starts the whole, uh, like, the first half story arc is when when uh, Pyle is assigned to Joker. Yeah. When he's actually put uh, in charge of him. Yes. Um, which I never really noticed mirrors the end of the film, too. Yeah. Which yeah. We'll, we'll talk about later. Right, right. But... Uh, that's really kind of what starts it all, and um, that's that's that the complexity of that relationship again is so all over the map. Uh, and in that final scene, you know, did you did, can you remember the first time you saw it? Like, I really can't. Did you it's think weird. that he was going to kill Joker? <sighs> I'm trying to remember because I what? can't remember either. Yeah. I don't know if it's I'm sure, retrospective. I'm sure I would have been worried. Yeah, I'm, but I'm I sure feel I like been, he wasn't. Yeah, and I don't know if I always felt that way. Yeah, yeah. but I always felt like Joker was well. I'm about yeah. to say safe, but yeah, yeah, as safe yeah. as you can be in right, that situation. Right, right, right. I mean, anybody else you would have killed probably. You know. Yeah. It's sort of like I, think you're I mean right. the way the way it plays in the film. Like, um, obviously, Pyle is almost uh, he, he's in this kind of like Frankenstein's monster, mm-hmm. like. Um, Vincent D'Onofrio talks about going for like a Lon Chaney kind of feel. Oh, really? Um, Interesting. And uh, and and so, yeah, he's like such a super villain embodiment of evil. In yeah. that in that moment, he's got that that weird look in his eyes, that kind of dead oh, stare, yeah, 
the and breathing. He, yeah, he, he it, well, it becomes a horror movie. Yeah, exactly. And um, and something about Joker's response after he shoots the the drill instructor, Joker says, "Easy, Leonard, go easy, man." Yeah. And that seems to be enough to kind of crack through to right. Leonard underneath all of that. Just not being called pile. Yeah, yeah. Where it's it's suddenly it's he's kind of feels a little bit human again. Yeah. Any kind of he has this look of recognition of like, oh, this is this is what I've done. I've I've really like I've taken a life, I've ruined my life. Yeah. And he just has that moment where he, you know, sits down and you know the rest. God damn, dude. That I, I remember distinctly that in the theater the first time. Yeah. And just like me and my friends just sitting there in fucking shock. Yeah, yeah. It's so abrupt yeah. and it's um I didn't know it was a movie in two parts mm-hmm. and it's just like it rocked my world, man. Yeah, it's pretty brutal. Pretty um one of the more effective on screen suicides, I would say. God, dude. And just the way it kind of you know, yeah, I mean that is the end of the first section. There's no aftermath, there's no like yeah. scene of, you know, them cleaning up the crime scene. Oh, or, the next, it just goes to black, and then you yeah. hear, you know, doom, doom, And nobody, doom, nobody doom. ever, you know, you never see any of the other soldiers discussing it, even even when they are in Vietnam and they're together again. Yeah, like, boy, wasn't never, that crazy? Yeah, private it's like they the never show. speak of it again. <laughs> and it's just kind of like, it obviously it informs everything that yeah. happens afterwards, but it's like, it's, yeah, they don't talk about it. Yeah, yeah. man. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, 
We have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. I'm not ready to move on to the second half no, yet, no, though, because no. there are a couple of more, um, couple more lines from Lee Ermey. <laughs> I feel like I should point out uh, this one. He's not yelling, but it's in the scene where they're talking about the um, where the the best assassins had trained. Oh, sure. And he goes, "Does anybody know who Michael Whitman was?" Yeah. And he's kind of standing for a Whitman. minute. Oh, was it Charles, Charles. Yeah, Charles yeah. Whitman. Yeah. He goes, "None of you dumbasses knows." <laughs> <laughs> And then when they graduate, uh, like the kindest thing he says in the whole film is, you people are no longer maggots. Right, right, right. <laughs> yes. That's like the, the, the kindest compliment he can pay them. Yeah, I love You're not it. a maggot anymore. And that's a good scene, too, because um, two important things happen. Uh, Leonard gets a little bit of due mm-hmm. and recognition from him. Sure. And he's like, congratulations, yeah. you made it. Yeah. And then before in the, on the rifle range scene when he's like, well, I think we found something you can do. Exactly. And you kind of think like, maybe he, this guy is going to make it. Yeah. Maybe, maybe he's like a savant when it comes to sniping for some reason. Well, I mean, I think the soap incident is what pushed him over, oh, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, that's, didn't that directly proceed? Yeah, that's because the, the scene right after the soap, I believe, is him lined up in formation and they're and all doing just, the chant and yeah. he's just got like the thousand yard stare. Oh, like man. he's not even there. Yeah. And, you know, he starts talking to his rifle and, and all the rest of it. Uh, but the the other important thing that happens is um, sort of the, the full circle of Joker and, and uh, Drill Sergeant's relationship. Because mm-hmm. it goes from, you're a maggot, you, yeah. you think this is a joke, yeah. to sort of the middle part when he assigns him the whole Virgin Mary scene. Right, right, right. Where I believe he does gain a little bit of respect for him. He says, yeah, he says... Um, what does he say? He's got guts or something yeah, like that. Yeah, he's like, you don't have brains, but you've got guts, and guts is enough, something like that. Because he's I like, you don't have exactly brains because you're not a Christian. You don't believe in the Virgin Mary. <laughs> oh, man. You know, so I can't fully respect you. But, that scene is so good. But the fact that you didn't reverse yourself when I pressured you yeah. shows that, you know, you had a, a point of view and you stuck to it. Uh-huh. So I'm making you the new instructor, even though I kind of hate what you stand for. Right. Like, you you know, when, when push comes to shove, you're tough. And so yeah. that, that's enough in combat. Um, so it goes from that to that to then finally in the in the assignment scene when he oh he finds out he's a journalist military journalism yeah. Jesus Christ yeah. who do you think you are yeah. Mickey Spillane yeah 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 exactly it's like and you're a was, killer not a journalist yeah and, but he doesn't like linger on that he's just basically like well you're dead to me now yeah 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 exactly he's like man you wussed out like you get no respect from me anymore it's so good man um, we should probably mention the uh, the in in the death scene there in the bathroom mm-hmm. the uh, the squibs. Oh, yeah. Um, the squibs in this movie are just... Spectacular. Yeah. I yeah. mean, it harkens back to like sort of the 70s squibs mm-hmm. when just big, huge... Globs, globs of like... blood. Yeah. <laughs> Looks like paint. You know, it's kind of yeah. thick, uh-huh. viscous. It's yeah. like acrylic paint, yeah. basically. Yeah. Um, but yeah, man, that scene, it, 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 it literally becomes a horror movie. Yeah. 
of the music, you know, it goes to that score. Oh, that by uh, Kubrick's daughter. Actually. Oh, is that who did it? Well, she's she's credited under the name Abigail Mead. Okay, but it is actually Vivian Kubrick who right. wrote the score, who was also in the film has mm-hmm. a brief cameo. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a pretty cool relationship. Yeah, very very cool. They seem really tight. Yeah, um, yeah. I think that's really neat that that Kubrick kind of, um, yeah. If you if you start to look into it, you realize that like Jan Harlan, who's his producer for most of his films, also was, was like his brother in law. Yeah. Um, yeah. He had a he had a lot of kind of the people that he worked with over and over were yeah, like family Vitaly. or they were literally family. Yeah. I'm surprised Vitaly wasn't in this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm. I imagine he worked on it because he was he was pretty much Kubrick's full time assistant by well, that point. He may have been a little too old. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, he might have just been the wrong kind of yeah look. Uh, yeah, look he, or he something. He looks fairly exotic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's he would have been too um, maybe too recognizable from from Barry Lyndon at that point. Yeah, yeah. probably so. Um, so it turns into a horror film in that thing, like the moonlight coming through the window, the slow motion. Yeah, the slow. Mo- yeah, exactly. Which is which is something that comes up again in the second half, like. Pretty much every time in the film that somebody gets shot, yeah, just about there's there's like a slow oh, yeah. motion kind of like, um, it really lingers on it, yeah, as if to kind of show the the moment of impact of the bullet and the pain and the blood coming out and them falling to the ground, yeah, um, yeah, even even like the the sound design when the drill instructor is shot. It's just like a, yeah. you know, it's like a real slowed down. You almost wait for the, oh, yeah, yeah, shit. yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's it's very, very um, creepy. Um, and the uh, the way he plays it in that in that scene is so, uh, Lee Ermey is just so perfect because yeah. he, he has no choice but to stay who he is. To stay, go on the offensive and yeah. try to. He can't be yeah. like, whoa, man, yeah. like, take yeah. it, you know, come on, let's think about yeah. what you're doing. Like, yeah. not for a second. Like he he even takes a beat where you think he could make that switch. Yes. And then he's like, you know, here's how it's going to go, basically. It's interesting you say that because he does make that switch in the short story. Oh, really? And it doesn't go well for him. Oh, like he, 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 he backs off? Yeah. Well, he, he, you know, he does. Or the, he shows fear, I guess. He comes out That's and, he, and he kind of, um, he does what he does in the film where, where he's shouting at the top of his lungs. He's saying, what is this Mickey Mouse shit? You know. Uh, you know, why is Private Pile holding a gun? Why are you not stomping well, Private Pile's Joker guts at out? First, yeah. yeah, yeah. And um and then yeah, he starts berating Pile. Um, but then Pyle just has this sense of calm that yeah. comes over him and in the the instructor realizes he's not getting through to him this way. Mm-hmm. So all he says at, in the book is he just you know, he goes from all caps to regular case. Oh, is it in all caps, he, all his yelling? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then when he when he kinda when he has his turn he just says, I'm proud, dash, dash, and then he gets shot. So I don't know if he's trying to say, like, I'm proud that you became a good sniper. Oh. Don't mess up your a good thing right. or whatever. But The only he, two words he gets out yeah, is, I'm he proud. Yeah, he gets, I'm proud, and then he shoots him. Wow. Yeah. I think uh, the last words he says in this is, oh, no, wait. Did your parent, you know, what is your major malfunction? Malfunction, you know, numbnuts. Pro- yeah, numbnuts. Did your mommy and daddy not give you yeah. enough attention when you were a child? And then, then he shoots him. right there. Yeah. Oh, jeez. <laughs> I mean that scene just rocked my world, man. The first time I saw it's it, it's so tense. I mean, it's still great, but even even the shock seen value it, of yeah, it, I know of like, wait a minute, what happened? Well, it's like Psycho or something. It's like you yeah, know, you, exactly. you lose a major character thirty or forty minutes in, and you're kind of like, well, what is this movie now? Like, where is it going to go from here? Yeah, and, and then you hear that bass line for these boots are made for yeah, walking, and yeah. it's such a change of uh, like everything changes, like from the stark quietness. And the perfection and the symmetry yeah. to uh, 
What what city are they in at first? Is it is it Da Nang or, or Saigon or I don't know. It's one, one of the major or, cities. Or, way or I don't know. But it's just it's colorful and yeah. it's active and kinetic, and they've got pop music playing. Yeah. And even the scene where um a, a bit later when uh, they're they're walking through sort of like the camp, mm-hmm. um, their soldiers playing like throwing the football around in the yeah, background yeah, yeah, and yeah. like having fun mm-hmm. and like war was. Painted as more fun than boot camp was. True. Yes, and I, I mean really a lot more leisure time, a lot more just hanging out. Yeah. I mean, the guys are, are are basically at that point talking about how they're bored. Yeah. And how they want to see some action. It's and, really you interesting. Know, that they're because I think they're they're it seems like wherever they're stationed, I think it is the the base anyways in Da Nang, because um, you see the sign a couple times. Um, that's where eventually they get attacked during like the Tet Offensive. But right. it was previous to that. I think sort of seen as like. You know, not not the front line. It was it was sure. sort of like safe territory. Yeah, that's and, where you would probably go for R and R. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so they are just kind of like relaxed and hanging out, mm-hmm. and it's not um, it's not a life and death situation there. It doesn't feel no. Like they're so getting much. hookers. And yeah, they're, yeah. They're drinking and yeah. Even like the scene where he gets his camera stolen. Right. Like they don't give a shit. Yeah. It's just a big goof. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. The, well, that's. I mean, that's something you see throughout the whole film is the way that they use humor to kind of deflect or disarm yeah or or just kind of that it's like gallows humor it's how they deal with yeah everything and so it's like the they they can't really risk like sincerity most of the time so everything is kind of said with an arch kind of joking knowing yeah you know kind of perspective so like when they're when they're haggling with the prostitute it's like right, fifteen dollars. Right. That's more than my mom allows me to spend. You yeah, know, how about yeah. five dollars? Uh huh. Um, well, and it's interesting too to pick up with um, the. Uh, it it doesn't show Joker going o- like it picks up with him sort of as a veteran. Mm-hmm. Like his hair is long. Yeah, he's been in country for. I don't think we even know for sure, do we? No, we don't. We don't know really. But he feel he feels, you know, he goes from the bald, yeah, you know, scared guy in that bathroom, yeah. To just sort of like this, and he's not a a grizzled vet. He's still Joker. Yeah, but he he fully gets what what's going on there. Yeah, I mean, he's figured he's, it out. He's like a he's experienced and he's seen it, and yeah. he's not a newbie anymore. And so he just has that that kind of confidence and self assured quality. Yeah, even though he still kind of pokes fun at things and makes sarcastic asides and so on. It's like well, he's Joker. Yeah, he that's the he, character. He has been through it, and he's seen a lot of stuff at that point, you feel like. Yeah, but there, like you mentioned earlier, there there really is this undercurrent, and I think it's part of the um, – and I don't think Kubrick deliberately says my message will be blank. Right. It's much more nuanced than that. But I think one of the messages is within these soldiers is like there's a lot of talk among the journalists about being in the shit mm-hmm. and making fun of you. Like you've never even seen the front lines. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. well, I have. I've been in the shit. Yeah. And like, has anyone ever killed anybody? And The thousand-yard stare. Yeah, all they're all kind of sort stuff. of like testing each other's – like some of them want to be in the shit. Yeah. Some of them were and wanted to leave, like the, right. the editor-in-chief. Yeah. Where he was just – like, I've had my ass in the grass. Like, Fuck Can't that, say man. I liked it. Yeah. 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 Uh, I love that guy, too. Yeah. He was, he was oh, he's good. Yeah, he's awesome. Yeah. Because he's, he's in charge, but he's sort of like he, – he's totally enjoying his yeah. his office. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, and he kind of, you know, he tolerates a lot of Joker's kind of snarky comments because he he understands as well that a lot of the, the games that they're playing around language and uh-huh. how to frame things, how to report things, 
everybody there knows that it's kind of a propaganda kind of experiment that what the paper yeah 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 but you don't see this in war movies much like um i mean there have been movies made about following a journalist but mm-hmm. this isn't quite that no like the other i was just calling it the otherwise assigned yeah like um you know you're a photographer yeah but you're still a soldier yeah like when the shit breaks out there's still in that fucking grab your gun and yeah kill people yeah it's really interesting yeah well i mean he's a journalist but he's a journalist for the military, right? <laughs> so it's like they, they, they. I think they make it's kind of like being Trump's press secretary. Yeah, exactly. It's like it's like you're 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 playing for the home team. Yeah. You're kind of like you're not there so much to report the objective fact as you are to shape the narrative to support you know the continued prolong prolonging of yeah. this war, and and uh, you know this is one of the the kind of. At, at, in in some ways continuities with Paths of Glory, and in some ways it, it, they push it even further in Full Metal Jacket. Yeah, you know, in Paths of Glory, there's there's a long discussion about what's the press going to say about this, right? And therefore, we need to make an example of these men mm-hmm. so that the story will kind of have this resolution that yeah. we got rid of the bad apples that caused this mutiny and so on. Yeah. Um, and in Full Metal Jacket, it's kind of the same thing where. You know, Joker uses the phrase search and destroy, mm-hmm. and he corrects them. He says, oh, now we're saying sweep and clear. Right. Uh, or, you know, Joker has been at the site of some battle, and uh, he, he asks him, you know, Did, didn't you see any dead bodies? Like, can't, right. you, can't you report some some enemy combatants killed or something? He's like, didn't see any. Yeah. And, and then he like, calls him like, right out, too, and he's like, maybe you could go. I bet you could find exactly, more dead exactly. bodies Exactly, exactly. And, yeah. And, um, and that's when he gets assigned another charge. Yes. That's that's when he's like, okay, you know, you want to be a smartass with me. Yeah. Take your friend, uh, was it Rafter Man, I think? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, take take your buddy and and uh, and go go to the front line, yeah. you know, and, and go go see some stuff. Yeah, and it's not, um, it's not the same thing as being charged with pile, but... It was interesting to see that mirror. Like yeah. both times he shot his mouth off. Yep. And both times immediately after the action of the superior officer was to say, now you take this guy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Raptor he, Man is a way better deal than Pyle. <laughs> yeah, he is. But but at the same time, Raptor Man is also inexperienced in combat. But wants to be there. He wants to be there. And yeah. Joker's kind of like, he's he's more paternal. He's sort of like, look, if you get killed, my, your mom's going to kick my ass. Yeah. I don't want anything to happen to you. So. Just stay here in the cush gig in yeah, like yeah, the yeah. in in the the rear, you know, right in the rear with the gear. Um, there, there's no need to to get all egotistical or macho about it mm-hmm. and and say I want to go to combat. Like right. there, there's nothing to be gained by yeah. doing it, you know. There is no valor in death. Yeah, um, yeah. That's that's another message. Uh, so he meets up with Cowboy again, which is great. Yeah. Um, that reunion. That reunion is so cool. And yeah. Arliss Howard is so great oh, in yeah. that role. Yeah. Um, and then that's where we get the the great, great Adam Baldwin. Yes. Uh, Animal Mother. Animal Mother. Yes. Who I saw in here uh, on the, uh, checked out the Mental Floss uh, article about Full Metal Jacket. And supposedly Arnold Schwarzenegger turned down that role. Mm. I'm like, what? That's almost like, I'm trying to think. I mean, by, by 87, he's pretty... Pretty well known, right? Oh, sure. I he mean, that was like, command. Yeah. That was I mean, he was, Predator. Yeah, and, he yeah. was doing those big, yeah. schlocky, uh, yeah, action films. I feel like that would have stolen the focus. You know, that would have been like stunt casting almost. But... Yeah, Bruce Willis was almost in it too. Wow, but he had to go. Uh, he got moonlighting instead. <laughs> okay, and then Anthony Michael Hall, uh, very legendarily, was supposed to play Joker yeah. in like 
haggled over money. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And didn't get the part. Yeah, and I'm, and he tries to say now like, yeah, you know, it didn't work out. You know, <laughs> it's it's all good, but. Like, man, you dumb shit. Yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> like, what an opportunity. You don't haggle on a Kubrick movie. Really. No, you just, just go it. to work, yeah, man. just do it. I mean, I get it in a way when you're an actor trying to make money and you're like, am I signing up for three years of- Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, uh, at one paycheck? Am I going to make, you know, eight bucks an hour yeah. when, when all is said and done because I'm going to be here for so long? In the case of D'Onofrio, he-, he uh, I, I did watch this. There's this very shitty 30-minute sort of making of on YouTube. Yeah, yeah. But D'Onofrio straight up is like, I have my career because mm-hmm. of Stanley Kubrick. Oh, yeah. He's like, this is was my first film, and he fully put me on the map, and yeah. I owe him everything. Our uh, podcast cohort, Kevin Pollack, had Vincent D'Onofrio on his podcast at one point. Oh, on the chat show? Yeah, on the oh, chat I gotta show. I got to hear that one. And I watched, uh, I watched the interview, and... Um, yeah, it's great, but but D'Onofrio talks about how he was buddies with Matthew Modine. They were both kind of young actors, and Modine had already gotten the part. Right. And so he said to D'Onofrio, hey, you know, I'm doing this movie over in England. There's a part that they're looking to cast. I think you might be pretty good for it. You really ought to, like, tape something and uh-huh. send it in. And um, D'Onofrio was, at the time, working as, like, a nightclub bouncer. Yeah, yeah, at and, the Hard Rock Cafe. Yeah, exactly. And um, <laughs> Of all places. And, uh, you know, he's, he, he talks in the interview about how he really didn't have, like, serious aspirations at acting. Like, he obviously wanted to do it, but at the same time, he just, he, you know, to, to, to actually audition and get a part in a Stanley Kubrick film was yeah. just, like, so far outside the realm of what he considered possible right. for him. But he did it. You know, he sent the tape in and um, Kubrick liked it enough to to give him a call. Mm-hmm. And he says that he actually hung up on Kubrick the first time because he thought it was a joke. He thought it was like <laughs> he thought it was being set up basically by like uh, Modine and other buddies or whatever that, right. that they were like faking it. And so Kubrick and Kubrick's assistant actually had to like call back a second time and be like, please don't hang up. Wow. We are for real. We liked your tape. We want you to read some more lines on camera and send that in. And, and start eating cheeseburgers. Yeah, yeah. He put on, I think, something like 50 pounds for the role. Yeah, I, I had I did not know that until recently. I always thought Vincent D'Onofrio uh, showed up like that and yeah. lost weight after. Yeah, right, right, right. Um, but he apparently put on like 25 and then showed up and Kubrick was like... You got to do more. He's like, you just look more formidable. Exactly. With more weight on. Yeah. He's like... You look like you could kick some kick someone's ass. You just look like too solid, you know. Yeah, he's like, yeah. I need you like flabby. Yeah, really flabby. Yeah. Um, and he said, you know, just that process alone. He's like, you know, some people think that like putting on all that weight and just like eating whatever you want all the time could be great, but yeah. if you're if you're an in shape person that's used to eating more clean, yeah, and you start to eat so junk, then then your health goes downhill. You know, you're tired, uh-huh. you're achy. Um, it's like getting, me when I diet. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like. Uh, yeah, he's like it, it's not fun at all. It's horrible. Um, one thing I noticed too last night, which I I don't know if I'm stretching this or not, but I felt like Animal Mother was this weird counterpoint to Pile. I agree. I totally agree. Like they were both the same thing. Like almost what Pile could have become. Right. Right. If he Just hadn't a little done bit that. Different kind of yeah. Training like or they were they were or... both sociopaths. Yeah. They both ended up murderers. Mm-hmm. Um. And at the end, they have a similar confrontation. Yeah, and you get that same score. Yeah, musical scores earlier. Yeah, uh, and I never it never really hit me till this last viewing where I was kind of like, interesting. It's sort of a counterpoint. Yeah, to pile and what he went through. Absolutely, and uh, there is a sense in which like some of these people have become so kind of deranged and like unfit for civilian life. Yeah, that 
their only place where they can really exist in the world and be what they are without causing problems yeah. is in the military. And there's uh, that line that uh, Eight Ball, I think, has about uh, Animal Mother. He's great. Where he's like, you know, Animal Mother can be a handful, but, you know, in combat, he's right. one of the finest human beings you could who's ever lived. And You want him on your side. You, know, all, you want him on your side and something like, now all you need is somebody to lob grenades at you for the rest of your life or right. something, you know? <laughs> like, you know, under these exact conditions, you're great. If yeah. you just had to, like, work in a store, you might be a monster. Yeah, like, what is this guy going to do after yeah, the war? Right? You yeah. know, how's he going to assimilate? Now that you've completely deprogrammed all the rules of polite society and civilization. Oh, yeah. You're just a killing machine. Yeah, how do you how do you put that back into the population? Uh, one of the scenes that struck me, th- there's a lot of beautiful dialogue in this that unless you're kind of paying attention to the words mm-hmm. uh it's easy to just be like yeah it's a war movie right but it's kind of peppered through but the the one uh scene where after that he first gets there and hooks up with cowboys uh platoon or whatever and they they have the guy with the the dead vc oh yeah and they do the picture and he has that soliloquy yeah that's a beautiful soliloquy it and really kind of goes to to what i was just saying also about just this sense that um that that people over in Vietnam, that way of life, that way of existing mm-hmm. during the war for these soldiers, like they they really are going to have difficulty adjusting back to you know they they always say when I rotate back around to the world, right? You know where they are right now is like some kind of purgatory or yeah. a different planet or something. Yeah, it's not real life. But he's like, you know, these are some of the finest human beings I've ever lived. Uh-huh. You know, um, I'm going to miss them when they're gone. You yeah, know? he says. Uh... You're jolly green giants walking the earth with guns. Yeah. These people we wasted here today are the finest human beings we'll ever know. Mm-hmm. It's fucking hardcore, man. It's really, yeah. That's, um, yeah, it's a very strong scene. And he's photographing him throughout. Yeah. And, and just the guy's kind of like poker-faced expression because you, you're, you're not, it's not clear. I mean, he's obviously being somewhat sarcastic, but there's also some sincerity in there too. Mm-hmm. It's just a very, very interesting delivery and the way it's written. And yeah, and that's his main... I mean, he's he has a few more lines here and there in the yeah. movie, but that's really his main jam. He's like... I think it's he's the one that guy. gets blown up by the mine when yeah. the stuffed animal's on the ground. Yeah. he doesn't really have any dialogue or anything then. Yeah. Never pick up the stuffed animal. I know, right? In Vietnam, Casey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Let's be a lesson. That great uh, surfing bird sequence. Oh, yeah. With the, the documentary film crew. The tracking shot. Oh, my God, yeah. dude. It's so reminiscent of Paths of Glory. I yeah, think. yeah. You know, and it's it, it's funny, like, yeah, the, I, this is like a, a major thing in the film, I think, is that one of the major differences between like Paths of Glory and Full Metal Jacket is you see the extent to which like kind of popular culture, counterculture, music, um, you know, references to television and all mm-hmm. these things like they're, they're so part of the fabric of Full Metal Jacket. Yeah. The dialogue is just peppered with. References to things, their nicknames, like mm-hmm. Private Pile and... All the John Wayne stuff. All the John Wayne stuff. Um, it's just constant. And yeah. You, and you kind, of, you kind of get the sense that this is kind of like warfare has become, yeah, just much more of like this weird cultural thing. Mm-hmm. Whereas in, in Paths of Glory, there's almost more of like a, a, a solemn quality to it. They're they're not yeah. joking and jovial and um and referencing all these things, but it's like somehow in the sixties and seventies, like the the kind of counterculture back in the United States mm-hmm. was was obviously playing out in Vietnam with all the soldiers that were 
kind of experimenting with different drugs mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. Um, it just feels like the, you know, in the, the same way that Apocalypse Now, for instance, kind of blends, makes Vietnam almost like psychedelic or something. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's just this this feeling that this is almost like a, a postmodern war or something. Yeah. Where, you know, it's it's the first like heavily televised war. Oh, yeah. There's, Every night, man, on yeah, TV. Yeah, I mean, like the, the, the kind of the emphasis on you know, casualty numbers, mm-hmm. um, footage of like bodies being carried on stretchers to helicopters yeah. and all that kind of stuff, like just brought the war home to the American public in a way that was unthinkable in like World War Two, World War One, yeah. previous conflicts. So there's a sense that like this is a televised war, but the war itself is also kind of like almost like a television show or something. Mm-hmm. Like it it just there's there's a weird blending of of like warfare and and pop cultural awareness that happens in in the Vietnam War, I think. Yeah, because I mean, in that shot when they're, I mean, they're in, um, they're in combat, mm-hmm. and this camera's crew is walking down the line. <laughs> yeah, and they're giving lines. As yeah, if it were like the, the camera shows yeah. up, and they're all immediately like, "They know, oh, I know what this means. Yeah. I'm going to be on TV." Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just so interesting to, that, and so Kubrick too, to uh, I guess as a former photographer, and mm-hmm. I feel like yeah. I know he wasn't the character of the documentary. But it looks like him a little bit. A little bit. Yeah. I kind of feel like that was a bit of a surrogate sure, for himself. Sure. Yeah, there's there's like a there's a photographer in 2001 briefly that also kind of looks like Kubrick from oh, that really? period. <laughs> um, so I yeah, I think I think he enjoyed those kind of like non-cameo cameos, although he does have a cameo in the film. Right. A couple times as a voice on the other end of the telephone. He, he's Murphy, I think is the guy's name. Oh, really? Murphy or Murray or something like that. <laughs> um, he's he's the one they keep radioing into to get the tank near the end of the film. Oh, he's yeah. He's just is. like, sorry, that's, can't that's do it. Really? Yeah, that's Kubrick. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, then the uh, one of the other great shots, too, is that uh, shot where they, where they finally lost some of their guys. And uh, it's that shot, that first person perspective going around the circle. Yeah. Of each of their faces oh, looking that's beautiful, down at the bodies. The, the rotation, yeah. Yeah, man. So good. I noticed that. I, I noticed watching it this time, there's a shot in the very first scene of the film after um, uh, the drill instructor punches uh, Matthew Modine, kind of gut punches him. Yeah. There's a brief shot from Modine's POV on the ground looking up at the drill instructor mm-hmm. and he's kind of towering over him yeah saying you know i've got your number i've got your ass yeah um, all Look, that kind of looking stuff. straight in the camera yeah too, looking straight in yeah. the camera and then the same thing happens um when they are kind of gathered in a circle around the the dead guy and they're all kind of saying you know well animal mothers is better you than me yeah um but they're all kind of saying different things Another interesting thing about that guy that's the guy that was sectioned eight because he was like masturbating 10 times a day uh which one was the guy that they are all um, gathered oh. around and kind of saying goodbye to. Yeah. Um, because uh, one, like one of the- Is he stuffed animal guy? The jolly- no, different, oh, okay. different guy. Different guy. Um, he says, one of them says something to the effect of like, tough break for a hand job. And then they had this whole conversation about- Yeah, he got- <laughs> He got he got kicked out of the army for, for just like masturbating all the time. And then when he got interviewed by the psychologist, yeah, they, they, he started they, masturbating. Exactly. He starts doing it in the waiting room. And they're like, he was just waiting for his papers to clear, you know? Yeah. You know, he would have been out of here. And that's a great way to get out of the uh, yeah combat. right 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 <laughs> jerking Th- off they uh they but that that's that's like a theme that really comes up over and over and over again yeah. in this film sexuality um because it you know I I was remembering like in Paths of Glory there is that moment right as the the execution is about to happen mm-hmm. and the guy has a line you know it's funny I haven't had a sexual thought in the yeah, last yeah. however long um that's really the only mention of like sexuality in that film and uh-huh. then you could say maybe a little bit 
at the end when uh, the German woman is singing and the soldiers are kind of eyeing her. Right, you know? right. But um, in this film, it is constant. It is uh -huh. con like the the dialogue about you know, uh, this is my rifle, this is my gun, this yeah. one's for fighting, this one's for fun. Well, and early on in the um, bathroom, one of the few yeah. side scenes in the boot camp right. when he and Cowboy are yeah. cleaning the bathroom, yeah. and they're having a normal conversation. I mean, it's not normal. It's no. a very weird they're, you know, back Leonard, and forth. Leonard talks to his rifle, all yeah. that. Yeah, and yeah. That, that's sort of normal, but the way they're doing it is weird. And... Uh, he says uh, whatever about giving your your sister my tube stage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, "What do you offer in trade?" He's like, "What do you got?" You know, it's so like that. weird that scene, and then the scene where Joker first meets Animal Mother. Just the way they play it was so mm -hmm. just slightly off center. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, but it's like you know, the, the, we have multiple scenes of like them kind of uh, being propositioned by prostitutes. We have. Um, you know all the all the things the drill instructor says mm -hmm. about Mary J. Rottencrotch and yeah. you know the the opening song uh, "Goodbye My Sweetheart Hello Vietnam." Right. Um, uh, Animal Mother at one point is like you know freedom as far as what they're fighting for. Right. It's like if I'm gonna get my balls blown off, the word I'm fighting for is poontang. Yeah, yeah. You know that was a weird line. too. It's like a constant refrain that yeah, it, it, it is. is really heavily sexual. They they are preoccupied with that. And um, even well, maybe when, it's like, just showing these guys all by themselves. Yeah, you yeah, know, they're, sure. They're shut off. Yeah, from I mean, there's sexuality. there's barely, you know, assuming these are all straight guys. It, there's barely any women in the film, mm -hmm. and uh, the only women we do see are prostitutes and then the sniper at the very end, basically. Yeah. yeah. Otherwise, it is just about 100 percent all men on yeah. screen, and um, obviously that that is a huge part of the commentary happening there too. Um, just the kind of like. The, the tension between, let's say, their kind of sexual frustration or something, that pent-up sexual energy. Because, yeah. the, again, the drill instructor kind of hammers this in that, like, you're not going to see any women. You're not going to get any action. Yeah. Like, nothing's going to happen. You're just going to be, like, in this monk-like existence. It's like, forget it. with your, and, and, like, the way that Pyle um, almost, like, sexualizes his rifle, calls her Charlene, and right. starts to kind of, like, fondle her and assemble uh -huh. her and, yeah, you know, yeah. and talk to her and so on. Um there's something very, very, you know, interesting about the the link that Kubrick is kind of drawing between mm -hmm. like violence and sex or yeah. sex and death, however you want to put it. There's so much more going on in this film than I ever realized yeah. as a 10th grader when I saw it. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> um, one thing I notice about all the battle scenes is the the camera becomes a soldier, basically. Sure. Yeah. And uh, I never had really noticed that before, but uh, like the, the landmine scene when mm -hmm. they're all running and kind of most of them, like... There are plenty of shots that show establishing and uh, shots of what they're doing, but many times the camera is sort of bringing up the rear. It's like embedded with them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and it really puts you in, in their shoes, I feel like. It's very different than like the Pazigoli tracking shot yeah. where it's more like a God's eye kind of view you yeah. know, from the sky or something. Yeah, this was a little more like handheld on the ground and, or and steady cam. It is, yeah, apparently a lot of it is steady cam, but they, they actually... Roughed it up a little? Yeah, roughed it up. Yeah, yeah they did not aim for perfection the right. way they might have on like The Shining um, there's a little bit more bumpiness and unevenness to it yeah. to give it kind of that documentary like embedded field yeah. reporting kind of quality I like the interview scenes too with uh, uh, I think he has a lot of fun with that documentary crew yes, yes. and uh, you know Rafter Man He's standing there all poised with yeah. his gun up and gives him the thumbs yeah, up yeah, and yeah. the big smile. Yeah. Who do they call? Mother Green and her killing machine. That's right, that's right. <laughs> yeah, it's like the it's very interesting because the you can you can see that the soldiers have a lot of um 
cynicism within themselves yeah. about their mission, about what they're doing there and so on. But when they get on camera, they actually do kind of like toe the party line a little bit. Except for Joker. Except for Joker who says, you know, I, I wanted to be meet, the first the <laughs> kid. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to meet interesting and stimulating people of an ancient culture and kill them. I wanted to be the first kid on my block to get a confirmed kill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he stays so true to himself. Yeah, he can't, he can't switch that off. Yeah. Yeah, and who was that guy in the the second um, scene where he gets dressed down by a, a commanding officer? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. For the peace button. Yes. Who is that dude? I don't know. He's great, though. I don't think he's an actor. No, There's no. Maybe, no way. maybe he's a real guy. Maybe he's like a military advisor or something. Because he was sort of like, he was sort of doing the Arlie Army. A little bit. But he had that squeaky voice. Yeah. It was so weird. What, what's the line he has about, um, you had best... Not unfuck yourself, but like maybe he does say you best unfuck it, but you know, or or I will take a giant shit on you, something yeah. like that. And it's, it's like really, really, I love that. The, not nearly as intimidating. No, as, it's uh, not as intimidating, but it's really funny. <laughs> Actually, that that scene is very interesting because he has a comment about, um, you know, you know, whose side are you on, soldier? You know, yeah. Why don't you join the winning team and come in for the big wins? I know, like we're at the goal line. Yeah, Help us push it over it's the like goal the, line. the really like the football <laughs> sports metaphor is yeah, just like, really funny. in your face, and it also reminds me of the Paths of Glory scene when you know the corrupt general there is like talking to the soldiers, yeah, and he's like. Kill any Germans today, soldier? Yeah, yeah, How are you yeah. doing, you know? Uh -huh. <laughs> um, it's that kind of like, he can't have like an authentic connection. Yeah. It's this weird thing where uh -huh. it's like, come on for the big win, right. all that kind of stuff. Yeah, really interesting scene. Um, I, I was shocked at the lack of Oscar love for this movie. Mm. Um, I, I can't believe Matthew Modine didn't, didn't get nominated. Did he get anything? Like, no, I can't no, believe no Ar tech Arlie or Ermey, uh wow. Well, it got a screenwriting award. Okay, okay. Um, but it didn't, the only no supporting actor for the Arlie only Ermey? other nomination it got was uh, Arlie Ermey for supporting. Okay, okay, but he didn't win. Yeah, wow. In fact, I put a uh, yeah. Who won? Who won? Who beat him? I wonder. But it was not nominated for best picture. Yeah. Yet, Fatal Attraction was. <laughs> well, I like Adrian Lyne. Hey, I liked Fatal Attraction. Yeah, but come on. Yeah. Uh, best just, director. I saw that recently for the first time. Fail attraction. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, it's good. I, I love. I won't uh, be ignored, Dan. <laughs> yeah, no, I just I love. Um, I love so the way he shoots. His his films are just very very beautiful. Yeah. The cinematography is always great. Totally. Uh, best director uh, Bertolucci won for Last Emperor. Okay. But uh, John Borman, Adrian Lin, uh, Lassie Hallstrom, Nor Norman Jewison. What was it, Borman? Uh, was it like Hope and Glory. Oh, okay. Uh, but best actor, nothing. Yeah. Uh, ooh, oh, interesting. Good Morning Vietnam was that same year. Interesting. Um, supporting actor, no. No nope. nomination. Wow. I think, oh, I know what it was. He got nominated and I think won the Golden Globe. Okay. Lee Ermey did. But yeah. But the, not even a nomination. Yeah. The, on, the only nomination that, this yeah. got was the screenplay. Man. That's, that's pretty rare that, you know, you win a Golden Globe and you don't even get nominated for the Oscar. Well, I, I looked and there was some negative reviews of this film. Oh, yeah. It wasn't, wasn't. Particularly well received. Yeah, like I saw most Kubrick films. A lot of folks said it was disjointed and didn't like. I don't. I don't get it, man. I think it's a masterpiece. I think maybe people had Vietnam movie fatigue at that well, point a little bit. Good Morning Vietnam. Platoon. Yeah, Platoon had just come out. Good Morning Vietnam. You'd had Apocalypse Now about what eight years earlier. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I, I think part of it might be that that people were just a little bit like. Enough already. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Um, so the movie t uh, uh, takes place, most of the combat 
or I guess all of the combat takes place on a, a you're used to the jungle right. in Vietnam. Yeah, you're used to like the thick jungle. And, there, and none of that is here. This yeah. is the urban landscape, yeah. this bombed out landscape, which is, I'm sure you know, an old abandoned gasworks building in England. This is South, all shot South in England. Southeast London, yeah. And uh, they were going to, it hadn't been used since I think World War II, and they mm-hmm. were going to tear it down anyway. And so they basically just said, go nuts. Yeah. And they brought in like hundreds of palm trees. Yeah. And that was kind of all they had to do. Palm trees <laughs> from Spain, I want to say. Yeah. And um, yeah, they uh, the, the the set designer literally got like a wrecking ball uh-huh. in, in like a walkie-talkie and was like, all right, knock, knock out this, this building and, you know, make a make a big window here. And Yeah, there's so much fire everywhere too. Yeah. Um, and all of that last part of the third act stuff. That it's beautiful. I mean, it's, it's like... It's very hellish. Yeah, it's very hellish. It's very... Just the colors are so intense. It, yeah. It flares out the lens a lot, which gives it that documentary quality again. Mm-hmm. There's there's all these like reflections and... and um, which again kind of goes to that documentary feel that Kubrick is going for, and, yeah. and also actually kind of recalls the candlelit stuff in Barry Lyndon, you know? Oh yeah. Um, because again, you have like a flame uh-huh. as kind of the primary light source for a lot of these scenes. But you didn't get a lot of the beautiful Kubrick stuff though in this film. You don't. It's it's very interesting, and and I was thinking about this as I was rewatching it. You know, what is it about the visual style in this film that is maybe less, you know, classically beautiful? Let's say than most of his other films. Mm -hmm. There's less images in this film where I'm kind of thinking to myself, like, oh, that looks great. Mm -hmm. There's more of a matter-of-factness to it. You know, with with some exceptions, like like we were talking about that sunset boot camp shot. But it stands um, out. It does really stand out because a lot of the shots in the film are a little bit cooler, a little more kind of just matter-of-fact and, Mm -hmm. you know, again, like I said, I was saying, objective. Um, but it is that it is that style that Kubrick is going for. He wants it to feel more like a newsreel or something like right. like something that could have been captured by like a combat photographer mm-hmm. um, day of mm-hmm. rather than something that's been over aestheticized. And yeah, I mean, there there's some exception. Again, the use of slow motion is is very very potent here. But he kind of um, did take a back seat directorially, I think. Yeah, or aesthetically, right. Uh, and didn't want to like it's not the kind of movie where you want to show off, yeah, and shoot I, pretty pictures. I mean, I think the most, the most I would say that's it's not even show offy, but the first part of the film, there's so many of these like tracking shots, there's so many of these like perfectly symmetrical compositions mm-hmm. that it feels like the essence of Kubrickian kind of visual style yeah. in that first half of the film, and then the second half is a little bit more of like a hodgepodge mm-hmm. and. I think very deliberately so in the way that you could say the first half of the film is this really tightly structured A to B to C, like cause and effect kind mm-hmm. of progression that's just taking you through the whole boot camp experience. The second half of the film is this kind of episodic, disjointed, floaty, yeah. sort of like just like little sketches and uh-huh. impressions, vignettes. Um that don't necessarily have like a narrative progression, which and, uh, some of the criticism I saw was for that. Yeah, which I don't. I don't I mean, know. A lot I, just, of, I, I think a lot of people just wanted a whole movie that was in the style of the first half because mm, it's so, so it's so razor sharp the way it's all constructed and so on. And then the second half is kind of like you feel like you're drifting, but again, that's meant to be yeah. kind of what the experience was like that you came from this like very regimented, buttoned down. Um, everything has to be just perfect right. procedural kind of thing in the boot camp. 
and now like you're in country and you're just kind of hanging out, yeah. you know, you're, you're, you're going to brothels, you're, you're just like playing cards in the barracks mm-hmm. and then suddenly like you're being ambushed and it's, it's this constant like stop, start, jumpy thing where yeah. you're safe one moment, your life's in danger the next. And yeah. Yeah. Um, so dude, the, the sniper sequence, oh, it's, yeah. uh, the last it's really the last act of this film almost. It's the last yeah. th- th- full 30 minutes yeah. of this movie is the, all that sequence from where they're pinned down yeah. by the sniper until the very end. Right. Uh, and it's just a master class of filmmaking, I think. The, the tension. The, the scene, and, yeah, the, oh God, the, shot, the shot from the sniper's perspective yeah. where it comes up over the, the blinds, you yeah. know, you can kind of see through the cracks uh-huh. and then uh, that, that – Kubrickian zoom. Yeah, yeah. He really, really uses it to the maximum potential here where, you know, it's like the sniper's sight zooming in. Yeah. And then just boom, the bullets. And what's interesting, I thought, was is that Cowboy was wrong. Mm-hmm. It was just one person. And I think he was right and hanging back. Yeah. But he, he, remember, his whole deal is like, I've seen this before, right. man. He was like, they're trying to lure us in there. exactly, And then we're going to fucking get murdered. That's why she's not, you know, going for headshots. Yeah. That's why when she shoots eight ball, she kind of shoots him in the crotch, actually. Oh, interesting. Um, and, and you know, some some people have made more of that, that it's that it's like this deliberate kind of emasculation. Right, because of the prostitution stuff. Exactly. And, uh-huh. and, and so it's kind of like um, that that's meant to be almost more... Um, more enraging it's it's meant to mm. to really lure them in huh. because she doesn't just kill him immediately right. she's like toying with him like torturing him yeah and they're having to watch from a distance and every time there's a new shot and he cries out in pain again oh, man. and they start shooting you know they they're, they're kind of um you know she's she's obviously playing on their emotions mm-hmm. and, and their desire to not leave somebody behind yeah, and not watch revenge. somebody suffer. Yeah. And even though rationally Cowboy is right, where he's like, look, they're just trying to lure us in. It's a trap. Like, this is classic, yeah. you know? And there's there's no kind of strategic argument to be made, really, why 10 or 15 of us should all go risk our lives for this one person that's right. already shot and bleeding and going to die. Yeah. But... You know, it is it is kind of pointed out that like Marines do not leave people behind in the right. field. It's something they're known for. So it's it's interesting that even with the kind of focus on like hyper rationality mm-hmm. and you know being strategic and everything you do, yeah, there's there's still some kind of core group cohesion that they want to keep intact, right? By not just leaving a body out there, even though it might put a unit at greater personal risk to go recover it. Yeah, it's such an amazing... I mean, it's a full quarter of this film. Yeah. Is that sequence. Yeah. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... 
Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here... We have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Well, Cowboy's death is... One of the more brutal when death he, scenes, man. Because you see it coming when he stands in front of that that opening. Yep. And it's you're just that like, one little, that little crack. Yeah. And you're just like, oh, man. He's just a, just like a you've, dumb you've grown dumb to mistake. care about him at this point, yes. which is yeah. one of the, like, I don't think Kubrick did a lot of work trying to really make you right. connect with these men. Yeah. But there was enough there with Cowboy to where it was it was tough. He has that moment during the the newsreel interview where he's talking about you know there's not a single horse in yeah. this country. There's <laughs> right. something wrong about you know a country with no horses. Um, yeah, he's he's a very likable guy. Yeah, and Joker's like best friend. Yeah, or only friend really. Yeah. There. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I get Rafterman sort of is right, I guess. right, right. Um, but then you know the payback scene. Uh, that ends the, the sequence, and it's just like it sort of turns into a horror film again. Right. It's one of like three times. That the score comes the, back in. Yeah, the soap fragging. Yeah. The you know the the bathroom scene, and then this one. Yeah. Uh, and I, I went and looked up the screenplay because I wanted to see what it looked like on the page. Mm. That end bit with Modine, and there were two versions of the script. I went to a previous version, and I started reading it, and I and and. <laughs> You probably know this, but uh, Animal Mother cuts her head off. Oh, I do. And I think that was even, they might have shot that. I think so. Yeah, yeah. But I was reading that and I was like, what the fuck yeah. is going on here? <laughs> yeah. But yeah. yeah, apparently in the one version of this, yeah. Animal Mother cuts her head off with a machete at the right. very end. Right, right, right. And because uh, Joker gets sort of accolades for being hard. 
Oh, and, and then Animal and then Mother's like, I got to top this somehow. Yeah, and he even says so. Like, this is hard, man. Yeah. Look at this. This is hard. Yeah. Holding up his head in everyone's wow. face. And Kubrick was like, it was too much. And <laughs> I think Adam Baldwin was like, didn't want to lose that. Oh, interesting. Yeah. He's like, this is like the self-realization of my character. You I know? think so, man. And he of, you know, I feel like there's always at least one actor that just sort of battles Kubrick. Yeah. And Adam Baldwin was that guy on the film, apparently. Yeah. Uh, sort of going at each other yeah. a lot yeah. on uh, on what to do. And there was one famous part where Baldwin, I think it was in the scene where he meets Joker and they have that weird sort of mm-hmm. standoff at the very, you know, when they first meet. Yeah. And they did so many takes and so many takes. And Baldwin, like, called out Kubrick in front of everyone. It's like, what the fuck do you want or something? Yeah. And Kubrick apparently just peeled his eye away from the viewfinder and said, why don't you try acting better? <laughs> yeah, that was uh, – D'Onofrio talks about that in the in the Kevin Pollack interview that Kubrick's only acting direction to any of them usually was do it better. Well, or – Do it slower, do it again. That's it, is is uh, physical stuff. Like, yeah. um, they, they, they showed a quick um, – sort of montage of all these actors in the movie and they're going quicker, faster, right. lower, yeah. higher, yeah. faster, slower. Yeah. Yeah. It's stuff like that. Nothing about motivation and psychology, no, or, you know, just kind of real, you know, um, I don't know, nitty gritty kind of mm-hmm. adjustments like that tone pacing. Yeah. That kind of stuff. Kind of interesting. Yeah. Uh, so Cowboy's death scene's brutal, but they get that payback scene and, um, it's a very complex scene because uh, as a viewer, you want that sniper dead. Mm-hmm. But then, Jesus, this young girl, and uh, you you can't help but, like, have sympathy for her oh, after for sure. you've seen how they're treating the women in that country. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we didn't even talk about the get some, get some. Oh, yes. That scene. Which you I, know, yeah, I'd love to go back to that. When, when Modine is like, you know, how can you kill women and children? Easy. You just don't lead them as much. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. just... The treatment of women in this movie is brutal, and I think it's all in setup for that final reveal. Yes, I think it's I think it's very very deliberate that the the kind of the reveal that it's this young woman, uh-huh. um, yeah, is is just meant to be. There's something so like psychological about it, like we were talking about all the repressed kind of sexuality that's yeah. going on in the film. The fact that you barely see any women at all, and then for the killer to be unmasked and revealed to be this like young woman um and then for them to who, almost who have may to have been raped by soldiers exactly like. of course she's probably had you know a lot of horrible things sure. happen to her um it's just yeah it's it's very sad because it's 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 a um you know it's like it's a complete stranger mm-hmm. in a strange land and Neither side is necessarily all that clear on what they're fighting for. I mean, the Vietnamese side is more clear than the mm-hmm. American side in terms of they are defending themselves against yeah. an outside, you know, occupier. But um, it, it's still just like this kind of sadness that this is the the plane of existence that mm-hmm. they have to meet each other on yeah. is is just to kill one another, right. complete strangers. And then the the one thing that you know, Joker is able to kind of quote unquote do for her is to just put her out of her misery. Yeah. That's interesting because the way it goes down is Raptor man. He's the one that wants to be in the shit, wants to be in the shit. Yeah. And he gets his, you know, he's the one that stops her and he's, he's excited about it. Sure, man. Like, I mean, this, I'm a killer. She was you know? kill, killing all, all the guys. Yeah. Like, uh, and saved Modine. Cause Modine kind of panicked. Yeah. He kind of like dropped his gun and was oh, trying yeah, to reload man. and he was just completely, uh, caught off guard. 
Yeah, and but Modine is the one who f- Joker finishes the job yeah. out of mercy. Yeah. Um and I get the feeling like that character like he's the guy years later who is the fun dad who is a, a fun Joker mm-hmm. as a person in like post Vietnam. Right. But has that ghost. Has has a dark side maybe yeah. that comes out the kind of um I knew some yeah. vets when I was like when I grew up going to church there was this Vietnam vet in my church that had kids my age. My dad didn't go. He was in college and mm-hmm. had like three children. Right. Or I guess two children by that point. So he got the deferment or whatever. Yeah. And I always thought he had mixed feelings about that. Sure. About not serving. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this guy, I remember very specifically, he was so kind and so gentle, but he had this quietness that always spooked me. Yeah. And I remember he said one thing about Vietnam once. Uh, was he just said, and he was so straight up and like didn't drink, didn't smoke, very straight up like Christian guy. Yeah. But talking about Vietnam and and he said something about the bad habits you can develop there. Wow. And, yeah. And uh, I think that's that thing that you were kind of hinting at earlier. Like when you're there, it's sort of like all bets are off. Right. It's not real life. It's a free for all. Yeah. Like and in Platoon, like there are all these films that show that like guys over there that are doing drugs or doing this or that or may, you know, go to a prostitute mm-hmm. or worse. Yeah, 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 yeah. When back home, that's not who they are right, at right. all. But it's a, you know, there's, it's a spooky thing. Yeah, I mean, there's the PTSD. There's the kind of just like uh, once you cross that line mm-hmm. into killing other people, even if it is in self-defense, let's say, like it, it is it's a hard line to, mm-hmm. to cross and then it seems to affect people the rest of their lives knowing that they've done that, that they're yeah, capable like, of doing it. Joker's kids later probably would in a million years not say that my dad at one point shot a woman in the face yeah. at point blank range. That's probably something Even as a mercy killing. he would carry within himself and yeah. not talk about pretty much for the rest of his life. Maybe yeah. never tell another soul yeah. that that happened. Yeah. Just like... Just got to live with it. Just got to push it down. And, yeah. you know, maybe that maybe that manifests in drinking uh-huh. or, you know, all that kind of stuff post, yeah. post-Vietnam that, that so many vets dealt with. Like between this and Paths of Glory, and uh, we haven't talked about it yet, but um, uh, Dr. Strangelove, mm-hmm. it's like a trio of of uh, statements about war yeah. that are all very different. Mm-hmm. But by the same director, It's I think it's interesting how, uh, I don't know about obsessed, but just how interested in war Kubrick was. It, it comes up over and over and over again. And I yeah. was thinking like, gosh, how many how many Kubrick films at some point or another involve war? Because you could also say Barry Lyndon does. Yeah, for sure. 2001, I was thinking there's, there's almost a parallel, you could say, between the Dawn of Man sequence in 2001 mm-hmm. and the way that progresses sure. and the basic training sequence in this film. Mm-hmm. Because in both instances, you kind of start off with, uh, you know, this population of largely men uh, or or male kind of hominids, mm-hmm. whatever you call, want to call them in the Donna Man example. Yeah. But, um, but it's this progression where they learn how to fight, they mm-hmm. learn how to pick up a weapon and to kill. And, you know, the, the culmination of uh, the Donna Man sequences, him picking up the bone and smashing and yeah. kind of discovering like, oh, this is like weaponry. Yeah, it's like, a tool. This is a to tool kill. I can use to kill. And that's exactly how they talk about the rifle and Full mm-hmm. Metal Jackets. Like, you know, this is a tool. It kills. It's a machine. Mm-hmm. Um, although they, they also say, uh, you know, it's it's not the rifle that kills. It's like a hard heart, uh-huh. which I think 
could be interpreted a few different ways. I think the way they really mean it is that obviously you need the rifle to perform the yeah. kill, but it is in fact like this kind of like killer instinct that we're cul- that we're um, cultivating mm-hmm. in in you during the basic training. That's going to give you that extra edge. Brainwashing is another way to yeah, say. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But but it's like we're 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 programming you, and mm-hmm. the the whole idea of like being programmed. You could compare that to Clockwork Orange, for instance. Right. Where in in that film, it's it's more of like a deprogramming they're attempting to do. Yeah. Or a reprogramming to make him nonviolent. But of course, that deprives him of his free will. Yeah. Um, it, it's kind of the same thing here where, uh, you know, the, the, the programming works for most people and it kind of goes wrong for Pyle. Yeah. Same as you could say about like Hal in 2001. Right. He's programmed to aid and serve uh-huh. these people, but... He ultimately kills them because right. his programming has kind of gone wrong. Something in the wiring has gone wrong. Yeah, and then just the journalistic aspect too of to document a war that you don't believe in, that you have to, are forced to put a spin on that you don't agree with. Yeah, well, um, like we were talking about the that helicopter scene. Yeah, so it's like they they basically have a story right there in front of them, right? Like the Milai massacre or something. You know, it's He's just it's mowing like down people war in crimes, the rice You know, right in your face, and. Um, Obviously, that would be a huge story, but that's not the story that they're there to tell. They're right. there to talk about kill counts and search and destroy and, uh-huh. you know, the war effort's going great. And, yeah, you and, want a happy ending. Yeah. Which so, is a kill. Yeah. But yeah. not one in the field from the helicopter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that would be that would be unseemly. That, yeah. Again, that's kind of the, the whole Kubrickian thing about, like, you know, obviously we do want some kind of rules of engagement and warfare that right. you don't just go about killing uh-huh. and raping and pillaging. But at the same time, it, it is kind of absurd on its face that like there's the sanctioned, uh-huh. perfectly fine form of killing yeah, in combat. Yeah. Uh-huh. When again, it's strangers, you know, yeah. um, who who may have nothing against you. I know. And you nothing against them. You're just two, two different countries, you know, uh, duking it out. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so this film ends with the the Mickey Mouse song, uh, and I printed out that last. Uh, did you do the same thing? No, the oh, okay. the last voiceover, or <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, that's why I was looking for the script online because yeah. you know you've got the soldiers marching out. They're all singing Mickey Mouse, a little bit evocative of Doctor Strangelove, I think. Doctor Strangelove and also Paths of Glory again because the last scene oh, of yeah. that film is soldiers singing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's and, right. And, and um, about that. yeah, interesting. Uh, but here's what the the script says. Exterior, burning city, night. The platoon moves through the city, silhouetted against the raging fires, a scene in hell. Uh, and then Matthew Modine says this. We have nailed our names in the pages of history enough for today. We hump down to the perfume river to set in for the night. My thoughts drift back to erect nipple wet dreams about Mary Jane Rottencrotch and the great homecoming fuck fantasy. Yeah, see, there you go again. I am so happy that I'm alive. In one place and short. I'm in a world of shit, yes, but I'm alive and I'm not afraid. Whew. Wow. And I, you know, I will say like one of the things that that throws me a little bit when I'm watching this movie is the voiceover. Because it's, yeah, it's not consistent. It's very sporadic. And sort of like the title cards in The Shining. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's very much like it kind of just pops up here yeah, and there. Yeah, it is there's, weird. There's really – it's mostly um, just the beginning and the end, I think, because uh-huh. there's a little bit at the beginning where, you know, he's like, it's so many weeks in, the troops are salty, we're doing this and that, yeah, or, but it's, or it's graduation day, that kind of thing. But you would expect it through uh, – like after yeah. the pile sequence. Right. 
you would expect immediately to hear Matthew Modine's voiceover say, "We were all traumatized." Yeah, I never got over that night yeah, in the bathroom. Yeah. And he really kind of like that voice. But before you knew it, I found myself in Denang. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's yeah, really interesting. But instead, he just kind of that that whole structure like disappears for a long time. Yeah, and then kind of pops up one more time right at the very end. That's what's so great about Kubrick, though. Like he always subverted an expectation. Mm-hmm. I feel like as an to and it the effect that that always had is just sort of keeping you guessing like you never know what you're going to get yeah he doesn't feel like encumbered by this sense of like he's got to keep doing it the same way yeah. the whole movie it's sort of like maybe i do just need a couple parts uh-huh. where there's a little bit of vo um although i kind of i like the the vo that comes up during the basic training section i really feel like could just not be in there but i guess then it would be too strange for the only voiceover in the entire film. I don't know. Or I can see it, it working. Yeah. I mean, it might be great. Um, I wonder, though, if – I mean, I don't – I'm sure this didn't happen because I would have read about it. But it feels almost like a Blade Runner thing. There were there maybe was right. a, a lot of narration that yes. they cut or something. Absolutely, absolutely. I'm sure I'm sure that was toyed around with. And, you know, the, 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 the VO that is in there mm-hmm. seems to more or less be pulled from the book pretty directly. I figured. So I think it's – I think it's almost like Kubrick is hinting a little bit more at that, at the uh, interiority you might get Uh more in a novel where you do get to kind of hear characters reflecting on how they feel about something. You just get a a sense of that inner life a little bit more Um, because, yeah, the rest of the film is so much you're you're at arm's length. You're kind of you're you're on the outside looking in, but you don't really go beneath the surface Mm -hmm. of things too much with, with the characters and their kind of emotional state. Such a great way to end the film, though, with and you know Mickey Mouse is being sung in the background yeah. over this voiceover, yeah, and they're all uh, just like marching through hell. It's just, god damn, what a movie! And it's the it's that same sense so of great. like tomorrow, you know, some of them could be dead, you mm-hmm. know, in, in or some we, other that that sniper thing was so intense, but that could be that could happen three days from now all yeah. over again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's. Yeah, there's there's no guarantee that that's that sniper incident is in any way isolated or special no, or, or the that, only like, time. You or... get to go home now, guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You just went through this awful. Yeah, you thing. went through one crazy thing, so you get to go now. It's yeah. like it's like no. Next week, you could you could be in some mm-hmm. completely different situation that's just as life and death, just as traumatic, just as yeah. you know, um, just confusing and, and frightening, and yeah. So it's like definitely the best viewing I've had of this film for sure because it had been many years, and again to see it older through this lens of really trying to get into Kubrick's brain a little bit, yeah, which is I think what we're trying to do here. Sure, Um, just so great. Yeah, what a what a film. Yeah, you got anything else? No, I think we did it. I think we covered it. All right. Um, So what are we going to do next? Let's hash this out. Boy, you're going to bail on Kubrick. Temporarily, temporarily. <laughs> okay. I just want a temporary Kubrick reprieve. So, I, I okay. I have I have two two thoughts okay. for this. One would be to just kind of uh, completely divert and maybe watch a little Godard. Oh, I thought you were going to say do Revenge of the Nerds. <laughs> <laughs> I would not do Revenge of the Nerds. I was just watching. Um, I just watched the the music. The, the 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 concert performance from Revenge of the Nerds. You remember at the end of the uh, movie? Uh, oh no! What was the dun, song? Dun, 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 That's dun, right. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> um, what are, what are the lyrics to that? It's like clap your hands, everybody. Everybody, and clap, clap your, your hands, hands to the beat. Uh, I just I literally watched that like last week. Um, but no, probably not Revenge of the Nerds. 
Maybe I'll let somebody else do that one. So what are you thinking, Godard? Okay, so thought one is, yeah, something from Godard, and I have a couple of movies in mind. Either that or second idea would be something by another filmmaker that is very, very clearly indebted to Kubrick ah. to kind of have a conversation about what does it mean to be Kubrickian? What is it about this film that, you know, mm-hmm. captures something from Kubrick's films? What what can that tell us about what it is to to be a Stanley Kubrick film or a Kubrickian film? Well, what Godard are you thinking first? So the Godard I'm thinking, I'm debating either between uh, My Life to Live. Haven't seen it. Viva Savi, uh, or Contempt, which... I haven't seen it. You haven't seen Contempt? All I mean, I've Contempt seen is, is uh, Breathless. Breathless. I mean, I like Breathless, but I feel like he became a more interesting filmmaker uh-huh. like immediately afterwards. Um, I, I recognize that Breathless has its kind of historical importance. Sure. And I do like the film a lot. But, you know, when I think about Godard, I'm not thinking about Breathless. I'm thinking about some of the films later in the 60s. Mm-hmm. And then, honestly, a lot of his stuff from the 80s, 90s, 2000s, and even today. Mm-hmm. So, Were you freaking out about Notre Dame? Yeah, that was very sad. I that thought was, you... I mean, it, it looked way worse than than it ended up being. Yeah, 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 sure. So I was relieved, and actually, it's funny you mentioned that because I did just actually see Breathless again uh, last week. Actually, mm-hmm. it was at the classic series Midtown Art, <sighs> and um, there's there's a very like pointed couple shots of Notre Dame. Oh, really? And it was like the day after or something. So oh, it was just fascinating to to see like that shot come up in a movie from 1960. Mm-hmm. And in 2019, we have this reaction to it. Mm-hmm. That's like, oh, like that, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's, it's like it's, seeing the Twin Towers. Yeah, or something. exactly. It's very interesting when, um, when something from the past kind of speaks to the present mm-hmm. in that way. What, uh, so what other film were you thinking for the Indebted to Kubrick? Okay, in the Indebted to Kubrick category, I was going to suggest a film by uh, Jonathan Glazer, Birth, with Nicole Kidman in the lead. Right. Jonathan Glazer, who also I did Under that? the Skin and uh, Sexy Beast. What was Birth? So Birth, to not give too much away, but Nicole Kidman is uh, engaged to be married. She's widowed once, um, her late husband has a heart attack. It's like the first scene of the movie, so no spoiler there. Um, and then this young boy oh, comes to see her and, 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 is and believes, the embodiment believes of... that he is the kind of re-embodiment, the resurrection of... All right, you know what? I've either seen that and don't remember it super well or I haven't seen it. But you remember enough when it came out or something. Yeah. You yeah. want to do that one? Yeah. Let's right, do let's, Birth because let's do that. Having, having watched this many Kubrick films recently... Um, I think Birth is just like it's full of homages to Kubrick. Okay, and it but stylistically it embodies so much of what we think of when we say something is Kubrickian, especially The Shining. But uh, many of his films are kind of sprinkled throughout. There's nods to like Barry Lyndon. Oh, there's nods to uh, Eyes Wide Shut. Okay, um, and and probably more. I'm sure there's probably more that we'll that we'll spot as we as we look at it. All right, agreed. All right, we'll do that, and uh, we'll just keep it loose from here on out. We can do whatever the hell we want, Casey. I love it. All right, dude. Thanks I'm a lot. Excited. Yeah, thank you. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. A new season of Bridgerton is here. 
and with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right.